Hello and welcome to Willosophy with Will Anderson podcast. Mike here, just introducing this week's guest at the top of this week's episode. Our guest today is Bridie Jabour. Uh, Bridie is a writer and journalist who talks in this episode about her experience, uh, her near-death experience rather, in uh, a truck accident that nearly killed her entire family. And uh, I really enjoyed sitting in on the Zoom call all of the uh, episodes of Willosophy at the moment are being recorded over uh, the internet due to lockdowns here in Australia. Uh, but yeah, this was an absolute pleasure to sit in on. So thanks again to Bridie for uh, telling her story. Her book, Trivial Grievances, is available now. We highly recommend you go and seek it out and give it a read. If you want to support us, patreon.com slash Willosophy for as little as a dollar a month, you can get these episodes a day early and ad-free if you want to support uh, our network, the Tofop Podcast Network more generally, head to tofop.com. You can check out all of our podcasts there. Tofop, Fofop, Willosophy and Two Guys, One Cup and AFL Podcast. And go and give us a follow on Instagram, Willosophy Pod, if you want to see all of the portraits by our artist James Fosdyke side by side. Uh, they are fantastic to look at and have selected quotes from the guests in their episodes. So definitely go and do that. That's all from me. I am going to pass it over to Will and Bridie for this episode of Philosophy. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to Willosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast and this is how the show starts. I ask my guests who they are. So who are you? I'm Bridie Jabour and I knew you were going to ask that and I could not come up with a clever pithy line for who I am. I'm Bridie Jabour. I'm a writer and editor. I guess is the reason I'm here. I often feel it's the most difficult question of the entire podcast and it shouldn't be but it's why I love to ask it because there's something confronting about somebody asking you who you are, I think. So Oh, I fell down a weird rabbit hole yeah. like, so what am I defined by? It, it's so it's so silly to be defined by your work and your job. But my work is like the reason I'm going on there. I'm not just a random from the street. But yeah, <laughs> you already put me into a philosophical rabbit hole just from the thought of coming on here with that question. Okay, but it's a good one to explore because how much are we defined by because I would answer if people ask me who I was I would say I'm Will Anderson I'm a stand-up comedian that's exactly what I would say um my job is very much linked to my identity and yet particularly in this last year and a half when you know my job pretty much went away for a year and a half then you start to think well if I can't be defined by my job then what am I defined by so Let's have another go at it, seeing that we've stopped down on this one, because I'd, I'd like to just talk about this question for the entire thing most weeks, but I have to move on to some other things. How do you define yourself? Like, you know, really, that is what the question is. Are you defined by your work? Are you defined by your relationship to your family? Like, what percentage of those things goes into the mix of how you define who you are? Do you just define yourself differently when you're around different people when you're around your family are you a mother or a wife or a partner when you're at work are you at work are those things bled into each other you you understand what I'm asking you Bridie explore that idea yeah I'm hugely defined by my job and by being a writer 
and a journalist and an editor. But also I think one of the first things that came to my mind was a little self-deprecating joke. You know, I'm Bridie Javor. I'm a proud daughter of Grafton. So <laughs> I still feel very much defined by my family, uh, you know, my parents and my siblings and the town that I grew up in, even though I have not lived there. Oh God, 15 years now I haven't lived there, but it's still my home. So before straight out of Grafton, crazy motherfucker called Bridie, like emerged <laughs> into the world, what, so explore for people where Grafton is, how big Grafton is, what your life was like in Grafton. So it's a town in northern New South Wales. Um, I don't know the population. I think it, it maybe was about 12,000 when I was growing up. And when I was growing up there, um, I was the daughter, well, I still am, the daughter of my dad, who was also born in Grafton, is from a Lebanese family. And my mom, who was born and raised in Derry in Northern Ireland and lived in Canada and Iran and England for a bit before she came to Australia. So two very different people raising me in Grafton. And I was the eldest of four and dad was one of six. So I had a lot of cousins. My mom's one of 11. So I had a lot of family on the, on the other side of the world. So my life in Grafton was uh, very much part of a big, loud, fun, extended family and community. Okay, so that's interesting to me because I grew up in, uh, you know, similarish circumstances. Like my dad's family are all from the same area or at least a lot of them stayed in the same area. So like, you know, Christmas, it really was, you know, 30 cousins all running around together. It was part of the extended family was this idea that they all were there and they identified with that area. So then... When you become somebody who imagines a life outside Grafton, when does that happen? Oh, early teens. Right. There's a point where you're like, I got to get out of here. This, this is not for me. I'm not going to stay here like all my family have stayed here. Well, I had a very formative, two very formative experiences. When I was about six, I was taken back to dairy with my siblings and my mum and my dad. And uh, this is in the early 90s, it would have cost a bomb. And also you're traveling with four kids under six. So we stayed there a while, I think a couple of months. And I went to school there in Derry for a while. And then when I was 14, we went back there and it was meant to be for a few weeks because my granny was dying and it ended up being for six months. And I went to high school there and I was 14, had just turned 14. So hugely formative. I came back from there my eyes opened to the world, having seen, you know, the end of sectarian violence there. It was still very recent history. So th this was 2002, just a few years after the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, I was very aware of the sectarian violence there. It was also hugely thrilling. My dad had stayed in Australia and my mum was not supervising me very much when we were in Derry. So I went night clubbing for the first time smoke ciggies for the first time you know I was not in the house at all and we lived like right in Derry where we were running around on the streets at all hours of night and day uh and in Grafton we live like actually out of town so there's no way to sneak out like you know what you're you're in the house on the on in the garden you're in the house and in the garden like that's where you are there's no popping down to a shop or anything so I took full advantage of my mum being distracted by her mum's ill health and all her other children and yeah, just went wild and came back and felt very changed, uh, had loads of great stories for everyone. But that was probably around the time I went through a very stereotypical teenage phase in the country, which I think most people go through of like, this town is so small, I hate it, I need to leave. 
it's an awful town. And then obviously as each year passes that I haven't lived there and I go back and I go back all the time and visit and you realize, wow, grew up in a really nice town. (laughs) (laughs) But there's got to be something about, you know, I mean, my parents always said of parenting that you've got to love your kids enough that they want to stay until they finish school and you've got to not love them so much that they want to stay after they finish school. Like that's, you know, there is an element of, you know, there's got to be a part of your teenage experiences like, well, maybe there is something more than this. I want to go off and have my own life and my own adventures. And part of that just, as a teenager, you define yourself. So you don't know what you are yet. So you define yourself by what you're not. Yeah. And, you and decide, in opposition yeah. to your family and parents, right. I am not especially this. mother. I'm not yeah. going to stay here in Grafton. This is not for me. I haven't quite worked out what is for me, but I've started with what is not for me. And it is this, how does a family that identifies with that area so much feel about a teenage daughter who's suddenly like this place is shit and I, I want to be out of here. Oh, I think they were just like, yeah, fine, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think, um, you know, they, they didn't spend much time stressing about it. Those aren't the things that uh, I think filled up their day to day life. There were so many kids and so many jobs and so many, so much other stuff to do. So me complaining about the town being boring, I think was very low on the list right. of things my parents were thinking about. Um but I think that they they're all they all always thought that I was going to go to university. I think they always thought that I was going to move away from Grafton. Like I think I'm very much seen as well in my extended family as uh in inverted commas urban girl yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and city girl, even though in the city I'm definitely not seen as very city, but you know, I think I always, everyone knew that about me. I didn't want to be in a, in a small town. And to me back then as well, like the place to be was Sydney. Like that was an amazing, exciting, bright, bright lights. That's where I wanted to be. It's not where okay. I went straight away. So as a teenager, what did you imagine Sydney was? Cause I always love what our imaginations of cities are rather than the practicalities of what they actually are. But what did you. Okay. Here's my biggest misconception. Yeah. Uh, city was a place. Uh, Sydney was a place that maybe you could go out after midnight. <laughs> uh, lockdown laws came into effect one year after I arrived in Sydney, so it was very much not the case. And you know, in Grafton, they'd close. I think the pubs closed. I was Some one of the classic it. ones, by the way, who was the opposite to that because. Like I'm older than you, obviously, and my early Sydney years were like great, like all night, like, you know, when the cross used to be the cross. Oh, when it was like, actually you know, a thing, yeah. Just big, you know, all night adventures all over the city. And then I got to the age where like the lockdown laws have never once affected me. There's not once that I've wanted to have a drink at a time that I wasn't able to have a drink in <laughs> Sydney these days. <laughs> Oh my God. Even as a mother, the lockdown laws still affect me. I never want to be home at midnight and I'm just getting started. Uh, I'm the opposite. I would lobby for them to get them earlier. If I could be home by 10 every single night (laughs) and it was compulsory, well done, lock it in. So where do you go first if it's not Sydney then? The Gold Coast. Oh, so why the Gold Coast? Was that because of university? Why, Why the Gold Coast? That was seen as a very big joke in my year at school that I went to the Gold Coast straight after school because even people in my year did not see me as a GC girl at all. Like, um, very, very fair. Oh, I was a party animal then as well. I always have been, but you know, I'm not the tanned blonde type of girl. And that was their perception of the Gold Coast, but that's where I got a scholarship to university. And 
a journalism job and I didn't actually think I went all through high school. I never thought I was going to be a journalist. That's not what I was aspiring for. It just seemed so out of reach. Well, because it was something that you, what, that being a journalist, well, I mean, you're of it. If you don't mind me asking, how old are you? 33. Yeah. Okay. So the generation where the idea that there were jobs in journalism and they were readily available to everybody was starting to become more problematic. Like yeah. I, cause I have a journalism degree, but I'm 47. And so, and even I, when I was starting out, there was a real sense of hmm, maybe this isn't the secure career that you thought you were going to be going into. It probably still was a hard thing to get into then. Right. Yeah. Is that what you guys were told? Right. Yeah, it was a super hard thing to get into then. And it only got harder in the 15 years between when the two mm. of us were doing it. So, um, yeah, okay. So there was a, a scholarship opportunity. So how did that come about? God, life, this is one of those sliding doors, completely life-changing moments. My life is completely different if this moment doesn't happen. I um, went to school to pick up my younger siblings. I was uh, in between, I think, trial HSE and normal HSE. So I wasn't at daily high school. I went to pick up my brother and sisters and the ladies at the office said, oh, Mr. Crooks has left these forms here for you. He thought you might be interested. I said, okay, and I picked them up. They were application forms for a scholarship to Bond University for journalism that came, and this was the key thing, with a cadetship at the Gold Coast Bulletin that was paid. So you would get being paid to work as a reporter from your first year of university at 18. And I, apl- I applied for it. I didn't apply for any other journalism degree. Um, and I actually got shortlisted for an economics degree scholarship at University of Sydney. But I got this scholarship and it was the only thing outside of Sydney that I applied for. And I got this scholarship to go. Okay, so I had to make the decision, do I go to the bright lights of Sydney or do I go to the, to the Gold Coast, which seemed was very, I did not spend a lot of time there before I went there. It was like a kind of cartoon place in my head. It still is a cartoon place, I think, in the national imagination. But yeah, I chose the job in journalism because when I was in school, I didn't think I could be a journalist because even then we're told it's really difficult to get into, which it was. And I just felt like I didn't even know where to start, how to get a job. Like I didn't know anyone who worked in media. I didn't know anyone who could have given me any guidance. I, you know, didn't even really know lots of people who'd gone to university. So yeah, it just seemed so unreachable. And, but walked into, happened to pick my brother and sisters up that day. The principal left the forms out. I applied, went through the interview process and got it. Okay. So you, what, do you pack up a car? Did you have like a car or something? How do you get to the Gold Coast from Grafton? So I told my grandfather, I'm taking your car. (laughs) (laughs) And he was just like, okay. <laughs> I said I need a car. I'm going to be on the Gold Coast. I'm taking your car. I don't know why I was so brazen about that, but yeah, he gave it to me. He was getting old, and I figured he didn't need it anymore. So I got his car, which was like this tiny, tiny car, three cylinders. It was like basically a ride on lawnmower. And this is how naive I was about leaving home. I still remember what I packed in the back. Um, it was a laundry basket full of clothes and one suitcase. As I drove up to stay with some mates who had already moved there. And the day I was leaving, my dad handed me a Refidex. Do you know those? Like, do you know what yeah. that, or is that Queen? Yeah. Mm. So I don't know if that's a Queensland thing. I didn't know what a Refidex was. And I also had given 
no thought at all about how I was going to move around the Gold Coast and know where I was going or get to the places. Like it had not occurred to me at all. Just had not occurred to you that that was going to be, yeah. So like a Melways or a Sidways or a Refidex in Queensland. Um, but yes, a map is essentially yeah, what Yeah, he gave saying. me, it was just, just before smartphones. It was yeah. just, so I didn't have, yeah, yeah I didn't, I, but I hadn't even thought of that. That's how like naive I was. And also I was not nervous at all. I was just like, here I go out into the big wide world. It's definitely going to accept me and everything's going to be fine. And it was. Well, yeah, what a great message for people. <laughs> Don't do any preparation. Just wing it, see what happens. I'm sure it will all work out and you definitely won't get murdered and no one will know where you are. And you won't get lost like with um, no idea where you're going or what or what to do. I do not know what I would have done if he didn't give me that refidex. I would have figured it out, I guess. <laughs> I mean, you eventually just would have got a Refidex. Like you would have bought one yourself. Like about three days in, you would have been like, why didn't somebody give me a Refidex? Yeah. So, but you obviously weren't intimidated by the idea of going off and forging your own life. Like, was there a confidence that you had at that point? I've always had a supreme self-confidence, always. Where does that come from? I think it comes from my siblings. We all have it. I'm the eldest of four, six years between me and the youngest. And we grew up uh, really, really close to each other, like living in a house outside of town, really close. Like we fought all the time as well. We weren't like best friends through high school. You know, I wanted my little sisters to leave me the F alone. But we have always found each other, because I've thought about this a lot about why we are the way we are. We have always found each other so interesting and so funny. And then we have this kind of foundation of these three people who think that you are the most interesting person in the world and then what you have is worth saying. And most of us have taken it into adulthood with us. Like, you know, not, none of us are really easily intimidated. My younger sister is in some ways, but she kind of had a different end to adolescence to the rest of us. But for me, I think it's that. And also my parents gave us such a, such a solid foundation. They were always so interested in us as people, but also had, I think not that many expectations in ways as well. Like they, they didn't force anything on us that we weren't interested in. They were happy to just go with whatever we found fascinating and interesting. And I think obviously the confidence must have come from there as well. I think there is something in what you've just said that is quite magical because I, I muse on this a lot because I don't think my parents, I think my parents didn't have, I mean, they, never put weight on my shoulder with huge expectations. I think coming from a farming family, probably the greatest expectation they might've had when I was born was that eventually I would take over the farm because that's what farming kids normally do, right? My brother ended up taking over the farm. So, you know, one of us did. They had, they had a spare, one, that's good. That's good, they had a spare. They, they, they had a look at me and they went, I don't reckon <laughs> this is going to work out. <laughs> We've definitely got to have another one. <laughs> but my, it didn't put a limit on my own expectations of myself. Like I think sometimes parents confuse the idea that if you don't have high expectations for your children and that they won't find their own high expectations for what it is that they want to do with their life. And also what was really great, like were you ever compared to your brother badly or in a good way? Like were you guys compared to each other much by I, your parents? I don't think so. I mean, like I don't – Yeah, neither like, were Not neither in any we. serious way, no. Yeah, neither were we. Like we are so different. You could not have four more different people. And uh, I, I was at oldest getting great marks at school, all that type of thing. It was never said to the others, oh, look at the marks Bridie's got or look, look at the awards she's got. You should go for that. Like – I was told, congratulations, made to feel they were proud of me. And then we all moved on to, you know, it, we did not dwell on those things and they didn't define 
us. You know, I'm not saying they had like super low expectations. No. You know, they expected to go to school and stuff. But, yeah, know, I don't think. And not be dead shit. I don't think that's sounded like what you said. I think there is a yeah, difference okay, between good. having no expectations but not putting that pressure on of like, I think that sometimes it's been, I've been watching the Olympics. As we record this, I've been watching the Olympics quite a lot. And one of the things that I've loved more than anything, maybe I'm just getting older. I don't know what it is, but I find the yes it's great that this young athlete has like you know won this award but they're doing this thing where they've gathered all the parents in the same place and so after the race because of covid restrictions and the way that the olympics are taking part media organizations don't really have access to the swimmers themselves in the way they normally would or the rowers themselves in the way so they're talking to their parents and their families and just when you see that relationship you know how they've supported them they're the ones who know how hard they like i mean but also just the different levels of anyway there's something quite magical about seeing it is it's so moving yeah. isn't it and to be so proud of your kid who's done like this extremely weird thing mm. like pursuing swimming for years because it is weird right <laughs> it is super, super weird, weird. <laughs> like like you know what it's good like once every four years you're like you swam 200 meters that faster than anyone else in the world every <laughs> other day that's weird that you're concentrating on that <laughs> of all the things i just want to be able to swim 200 meters faster than anybody else yeah, so good for you. <laughs> well, you did it. <laughs> I find it very sweet as well. I have been very moved by the parents yeah. and how happy and excited they are. So well. you're a parent yourself. Um, did you always think that you would be a parent? Like, did you um, just have that expectation from like growing up, as you said, with siblings that you enjoyed the company of and parents that you clearly, you know, felt love from and loved in return and that you yourself wanted to be a parent? Yes and no. Like it's really, it's really strange. I think I always thought that I would become a mum uh, and that I would have kids. I couldn't see me not having them, but I also never once had a maternal urge. You know, I was, and I was well known not to be a maternal person growing up. My cousins would get my younger sisters to babysit their kids when they were like in their early teens before they would ask me because I was so terrible with kids. So I think I always thought of it as this far off inevitability, but I didn't actually, even when I became pregnant, didn't actually put that much thought into, did I really want it? Yeah. I just assumed that I would. And then I did. So one of the, so you've written a book, we should plug the book. Um, you know, uh, so your book. Oh, please plug it. It's come out in lockdown. It's so depressing. Well, okay. Well, let's, <laughs> you know what, before I get to my question then, because uh, I, I don't like to, the book's there like for people to read. And when I do an interview like this around when somebody's plugging a book, like one of the things that I always try to do is not just give away shit that people could go and read in the book. But there's a couple of things that are in the book that are worthy of discussion on the podcast. But let's talk about the the book first. Like what was the process of putting a book out in the middle of a lockdown like? Uh, it, it's been so grim. I am not a solitary person. I am not someone who works away on this project for months and months and then gets satisfaction out of the finished product. What I get satisfaction out is the parties in my honour. <laughs> That's what I want. That's what I did this for. It's what I did it for. To get... <laughs> I don't care about making art. <laughs> No, obviously I do in a way, but an immense satisfaction for me is the party at the end. And, you know, my, my aunts, well, for my first book and they were going to do it this time, my aunts fly from Grafton and Brisbane. My parents come down, the siblings that can make it. 
make it like all my mates from work come all my mates from every other part of my life come like it's just this awesome party that's like you should actually get it when you give birth actually this awesome party in your honor that's like wow you did such an impressive cool thing well done and then you feel recognized for a night yeah i mean and get a lot yeah, of people toasting your baby and your book everyone like you know let's all gather around celebrate that it's out <laughs> and now yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I get drunk. <laughs> it's interesting to me, though. Tell me why you enjoy that. Because um, it, I'm making a judgment on myself, not on you, by the way, when I say this, which is I wish that I'd been able to enjoy those things more. I feel very uncomfortable about that part of what it is that I do. I am the other one. I'm the one who makes the TV show and like the minute that we finish making the show, I'm like, great, let's think about the next show that we're going to make. And everyone else is like, we've got this rap party that you've got to make a speech at. And I'm like, oh my God, I hate making television. Like that, the idea of having to go to that party, having to go to the Logies, having to like oh, celebrate things to me, like to go to the last night of the comedy festival. I couldn't I've done the comedy festival 25 times and been to the, closing night party like twice you know i just that bit of the process has just never been something that i felt comfortable with oh i live for the closing night party but i wish that i i, I, I wish that it. i enjoyed it so why what is it that you enjoy so much about those things just love a party love people love a party love people seeing the people i love love being i don't know how much i love i think i think that i love being the center of attention but i don't actually love being the center of attention that much i find that those bits of the evening a bit cringy but I just love being surrounded by all, all my mates and my family, having a good time. I love any party. I would go to a party, like if I could, and someone invited me to, you know, the opening of a peanut butter jar, and I knew that people I liked were going to be there, oh, I'd go. Like I'd be there in a yeah. second. <laughs> There's actually a word for it in Ireland because um, my mum's Irish. I'm a crack wizard. I'm an absolute crack wizard. Okay, so... There is, I mean, and that is part of that Irish tradition, right? Like, I mean, this, the Irish storytelling tradition of people gathered in late bars and you go to any pub in Ireland and there's like, you know, eight people who are as funny as any open mic comedy night that you would ever go to. In fact, much funnier, you know, telling these stories. Yeah. And it is part of the tradition and the culture. Did you feel like that that was part of your tradition and culture? Was there storytelling in your upbringing? Hugely, yeah. I actually haven't really thought about that much before, uh, which is funny. But, yeah, huge storytelling, um, stories of our birth, stories about, you know, my mum before she came to Australia and how she came to Australia in her childhood. My dad is so different from my mum in that way in that he doesn't ever talk about himself much, you know, if, he, if you asked him. Well, super close and he was super involved, dad. But if you said to him, um, you know, what was it like when you were 12 years old? He'd just be like, I don't know. I don't remember. Hmm. And so we caught all that information about him from mom. Mom would tell us the stories. But I think we were always telling each other stories. And my siblings and I love to repeat stories back to each other of things we've been through together, even if that thing happened two weeks ago. We love to sit around talking about like, oh, I remember two weeks ago and we will go through it, through it step by step. And then he came into the pub and then you said that to him and then we turned around, you know, that. So we, we are very into that and we're all mad talkers, my siblings and I, which we definitely get from our mom. Okay. So you've written a book. It's called uh, oh, Trivial, Trivial Grievances. And uh, uh, so it's a collection of, you know, um, 
uh, what are they? Essays? Is that what we call it's them? It's a funny little book, sure. isn't it? It, it? it They were like essays, but it's kind of like, it's like part memoir. There's a bit of like, there's, I think a bit of journalism in there. Like I had to talk yeah. to people and interview people and tell other people's stories as well. A little bit of philosophy. It's like basically about having an, what you do when you have an existential crisis and also, you know, how do you, how do you live a good life and be a content person? I think is what it okay. ended up being about, which was hugely enjoyable to write. Uh, so obviously, you know, they're topics that I'm pretty interested in. And there was a couple of like defining moments, like there's some, a couple of headline moments that, you know, speak to why you were examining, you know, some of these things you, you experienced a couple of, well, scares like you know a, you know, a near-death experience and uh well an act you know what i'm gonna let you tell it i'm not gonna summarize give people the sort of like you know the headline here of a couple of the challenges that you face well the the thing the moment i think that changed me the most was not even like my most dramatic near-death experience it was when my son was 14 months old and he had a seizure and he we were at home. It was the evening. My brother was over. My brother is a nurse and my husband was at home. And um, I turned around and he was in the high chair and he was having a seizure. Uh, and I froze. Always thought that I would be more of an action person, but I was not in that moment. And I just screamed for my brother Seamus because he's a nurse. And he came out of the kitchen, saw it happening and had to tell me to ring an ambulance. So I dialed triple O and while my brother got him out and um and my husband as well and they just got him to a position that was safe to have a seizure in and as I was on the phone uh my son started turning blue and my brother yelled yelled at him stay with us stay with us and like in that moment watching my son turn blue none of us able to do anything and my brother who is you know the medical person being so obviously scared and saying something like that, just like time stopped for me. And I honest to God thought that I was watching him die. I, that's what I thought was happening in that moment. Um, but I wasn't, he was fine. Uh, little kids are freaks and they sometimes have seizures for no reason. Like, well, because their temperature goes up really quickly, but it is so common that, you know, the Ambrose came um, and when they, we rode in the ambulance with them, they said to us that, Sometimes when they get calls to those jobs, they have to treat the parents before they treat the kid because the parents are in such shock and um, they basically need to be sedated even though the kid is fine. But you don't know the kid's fine you know, afterwards. Like it is hectic. And that moment really um, like broke my brain in a way, probably in a good way, but I, you know, lost a bit of myself that day. I used to be a lot cooler, a, lot, a, a cool mum. Um I realized that day that my son is mortal. I had a secret deep belief that he would live forever. And, you know, I realized he's not going to, and that something bad could happen to him. And I'm not an anxious person, but that definitely, there was a little bit of anxiety that has stayed with me ever since then. And has made me very aware of how quickly things can go wrong. And uh, also that my kids are going to die one day. <laughs> I am aware of that now. So, and that, that was like the big formative moment for me. And I think, you know, informed the book in a way that I did not realize how it informed the book really until I was towards the end of writing it. And that's when I realized that I just spent a year probably writing out my feelings about that moment and about what it made me realize about life. And then I handed in the book and I was in North Queensland on the Bruce highway, uh, 
on the highway, yeah, on the Bruce Highway, sitting in the back with my two sons. By now I had two kids and a semi-trailer hit our car from behind and it rolled three times. And um, like I knew I was conscious the whole time I knew what was happening. And it was like time slowed down for sure. And I was just, you know, thinking I put an arm in front of each kid, didn't pick a favorite. And it was just like, do not roll again. Do not roll again. It rolled again. Do not roll again. Do not roll again. And it rolled again. It rolled three times. When the triple O call was made from bystanders, they dispatched a helicopter because the call was car hit by truck in hundred zone rolled three times. You know, people don't usually walk away from that. And my entire, my husband and me and my two kids walked away from it just, and the fortnight after that was incredible. Like, I was euphoric. It is the most odd list out feeling like nothing can touch you for a while. You're just like so freaking high that you're alive. Uh, yeah. Well, that was only a few months ago. And after, after the, I'd finished the book, but still made me think a lot, you know, that night I was lying in pediatric ICU, which is not a place that you want to be. And with my baby, he was 10 months old. He was in overnight for observation and my shoulder was broken, although I didn't know it was broken at the time. It took a while to diagnose. I'm just lying there thinking, God, everything I wrote in my book is so right. <laughs> I'm glad I'm correct about what's important in life. <laughs> I mean, it's moments like that that you get a real insight into that where it all gets stripped away. And I think... There is a relevance, obviously, to what the world, what has happened to the world in the last eighteen months, is that there has been a reckoning of sorts, like an existential crisis that has been played out across the media and across countries, as we've all dealt with, you know, loss of jobs and security and ideas about. We've all discovered that our kids might die. Yeah, you know, hugely as a world. And and one of the observations was that I, you know, I thought was really interesting in that story was that you were talking, I believe, to a, maybe a nurse later on and who was talking about, you know, how lucky you were basically that you should have died or that one of you oh should God, have died. Yeah. No, no, the, nur the nurses were the normal ones. It was the doctors oh, yeah. who say the weird stuff to the you. Doctor. The doctor. Yeah, right. One doctor said your entire family could have been wiped out, which is like bone chilling. Then a doctor came in hard because doctors and nurses kept visiting us because they'd heard about yeah. the accident and they were like, you know, we can't, want to say these they, yeah, who yeah, are exactly. <laughs> they were like, what the fuck happened? How the fuck did you walk away? They're like, what car are you like? You know, what car are you driving? How did it happen? They couldn't believe it. Um, and yeah, one doctor was like, whole family could have been wiped out. Thanks, babe. And then half an hour later, another doctor says, you know, you could all be dead or at least one of you. Saying that at least one of us, so much scarier than, you know, all of us. That's so terrifying to me thinking about which one of us and, oh. And then, um, no, the nurses were normal. The nurse on the night shift was just hugging me going, fucking hell, mate, fucking hell. <laughs> which is the correct human response. So you having been through this and then obviously the world going through what it's gone through, what... What lessons out of your own personal experience did you take into the lockdown experience or do, do you want to share with people about the lockdown experience? I think what a lot of people are realising in the pandemic and lockdown and what I started to realise after my son's seizure was I'm too defined by work. I work too much. 
uh, I'm putting too many hours into this and this is not the thing that matters. You know, work is fine and I have a very interesting job. It's good to enjoy your job. It's fine to work, but I need to be more aware of the things that are important in life. And, you know, what is important in my life is very much my relationships with other people. The borders of my life are my relationships with relationships with other people and the people that I love, which is my my little family here in Sydney, my broader family in Grafton and Derry, and also very close uh, friendship circle that I have. I just need to be constantly reminded, these are the things that matter. This is what I shouldn't prioritize work over them and I should not give my best self to work. And then, you know, be tired at the end of the day and cranky and distracted. Basically there needs to, there needs to be a better way. And I think that is something a lot of people have realized over the last 18 months as well is. So if that is true, and I think that it probably is, or at least it is for a lot of people who feel like they have to, you know, live some sort of, you know, way of life or be judged by measures that aren't actually that important to them. But our society is set up not to reward what you've just talked about. Our society is set up to reward the person who throws himself into the work. And we will see the machine of our society try to rev up again and reprioritize things as being you are successfully defined by your job. The question that we asked at the start, that we started talking about it, I believe the world you know, is aching to return to that yeah, definition sure. of people's you know, productivity to the world. So. If there has been some sort of realisation that perhaps we've been judging ourselves by the wrong measures, how do we stop the world automatically going back to judging by the pre-existing measures and not these new ones that we've found important? It's so hard, isn't it? Well, mm. first of all, I guess you need to be able to earn a living wage working a reasonable amount of time. So there are some systemic issues in there that are, that are difficult to grapple with, but we're, I'm not going to solve that. I think, but I do think there is going to be, there has to be some sort of social revolution coming where we've gone past that like girl boss peak hyper consumer society where we think that there's moral value in working hard. I do think that there is some collective moving past that and some shift in our consciousness because uh, being, you know, being defined by your achievements at work, what also comes from that is people are assigning moral value, moral value to work. And it's seen, it's seen as good or showing something in your character. If you work 80 hours a week, like, and that I think goes from everything from, you know, journalism to TV to nurses as well. And I know loads of nurses, you know, it's seen as admirable to pull those 12 hour shifts and do the overtime, like seeing you're seen as a better person because of it. And so I think, you know, how, how do we, stop being defined by that. I think that a shift is already happening. I think the pandemic has brought on a shift, but you know, a personal shift in our thinking isn't going to change all the systemic structures in place. So that needs to happen as well. What's well, not enough, right? Um, like, I mean, you can decide to work less, but the way that the system is set up, society is set up that you get disenfranchised from exactly. You could like, you could work less, you could earn less money. You have less you know, capacity to do things. You work less, you have less of a voice you know, in the like particularly through what you do, like suddenly maybe you're not writing a book or you're not writing, you're not editing a column or you're not like doing whatever it is that you're contributing on and suddenly your value to the society gets disenfranchised from what society values. Yeah, and you can only opt out to a degree. You still got to pay the rent. You still got to right. pay your bills. Like you still got to <laughs> eat food on the table unless you come, you know, unless you're inheriting 
or your wealth, which I wish I was, but I'm not. (laughs) 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 But yeah, so you can only ever opt out to a degree. And I think just on the personal level, what I have control of at the moment is just trying to not ascribe moral value to work, uh, trying to separate my work from myself a little bit, even though my work is fulfilling and I'm still an ambitious person. So there's definitely that conflict inside of me. You know, it's easy for me to say, don't be defined by work. Work is not the most important thing. Um, You know, the people you love are the most important thing. Still wrote a book on maternity leave during a pandemic, (laughs) still coming on your podcast, you know, to, to promote it. Like I'm still, I'm still. Had a near death experience and just said, you know what, this could be some good content. So. Oh yeah. I thought it was very funny. I use that to promote my book. Like the irony was very clear to me, but no one could call me out because I was like, because it was like, God, she almost died with her kids. So we can't call her out for then using it to sell her book, which I did. She had this great revelation that she should spend less time working and more time with the kids. Anyway, here's the book she wrote. Yeah, I know. I'm glad that you that you just blatantly said that because I, of course, was thinking it. I was doing my taxes the other day or getting them, to, um, you know, together. And I was like, oh, I'm going to claim some of these flights to Townsville because that's where I had the accident and I wrote about it. Sorry. <laughs> it's coming off my taxable income. You know, so I still, yeah, I still turned it into content. So the conflict is very much alive and well in me. I mean, it's telling stories though, right? Isn't that the idea where you're telling stories, you're sharing stories? Oh yeah, that's what we tell ourselves. Yeah, sure. That's what we tell ourselves as well. You're still still self-promotion too. (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, it depends if you want to go to the party or not, I suppose. (laughs) 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 Okay, so what about the process of writing? I'm always fascinated when I talk to people who write for a living because I have a... I write for a living, but I have a very complicated relationship with writing. You know, I I don't know who said it originally, but they said, I don't like writing, I like having written. And I think that is a very good way to explain my relationship with writing. But I like to talk to all writers about how they feel about writing. Do you enjoy the process of writing? I do. I'm, I'm not too hard on myself with the writing though. Like I, some people find it a very torturous process and complain about it and oh it's so it's so hard it's so hard to write this book uh, you know it's so so difficult what I'm doing when I was writing my first book I was sitting there in my apartment uh trying to finish it up in the morning thinking like this is so fucking hard this is fucked why did I do this then my brother walked in he was living with me at the time walked in from his night shift as an ICU nurse (laughs) And I was like, this ain't hard. <laughs> what I'm doing is not hard. So I don't, I don't have a torturous relationship with it. I don't carry on about it. I don't pretend it's more difficult than what it is. And yeah, there are definitely parts that I enjoy. I'm, I think that also because I'm a, you know, come from a journalist background, journalists are really good at getting words on the page and them not being perfect. So when I say, so my process is that at the beginning of each week, I look at the week. And I see where I have time. I have an hour and a half here at 6.30 in the morning on Tuesday. I have two hours on Saturday morning from 9am to 11am when my husband will take kids out of the house. And maybe I've got like an evening at 9pm. I don't actually write that much in the evening because I'm so drained usually from the day. And then, so I put those in my diary and I sit down and write. That's when I sit in front of, and I always just have to sit in front of my computer 
even if I don't write, I still have to sit there for the time, but I always end up writing and I don't, and I don't try to make it perfect. And I always think I'll go, I can go back and edit it, but you can't edit nothing. So you have to get the, have to get the words down. And so that's my process. I sit down for the time that I say, I'm going to sit down and I, and I write. That's interesting to me because a lot of writers talk about the idea of having uh, you know, a specific time of the day that they write or having some routine to it. But you really are just like, well, here's where I have these hours. I'm just going to write in those spaces. Yeah, I used to, that's just my reality because I've got little kids. But, you know, there are definitely times of the day that I would think I would write best and would work best. But, you know, that's been taken away from me for a few years, which is fine, by my own hand, taken away, taken away from me by my own hand. So, yeah, I, I just write speaks, when I can. But it speaks to the prioritisation. Like, I mean, we joked about the idea that you wrote a book about it on maternity leave, but you clearly didn't say, and by the way, I'm not going to speak to any of you before midday and you're going to have to handle everything else because I'm writing my book. You prioritised your family and the rest of your life and just let the book fit in yeah. in between the gaps. I do fit it in in the gaps. And I also do this insane thing where I work with the study door open and for a while kept chocolate on my desk. So my toddler was like <laughs> constantly coming in. but Just luring Yeah, I, it's like I wanted him to interrupt me, but I don't mind interruptions. I, I thrive okay. in I thrive in chaos. At one point when I was doing my HSE, there were 12 people that lived in my three-bedroom house. So with various cousins and stuff moved in for a few months for various reasons. And, you know, I just, I just dealt with it. Just I, me and my brother actually cleaned out the shed and moved to the shed, <laughs> but I can deal with, I can deal with noise. I can deal with people. I don't need a perfect setup at all. Like I am quite comfortable in the chaos. Um, so you spend all this time thinking about life and the meaning of life. And that's what this, podcast is really about like I dress it up in everything else but really just I'm asking people about what they think life is about you've faced the idea of death you've wrestled with your own children's mortality what do you think happens when we die something you have so many guests who they go nothing nothing happens it's like where's your imagination guys <laughs> I mean it's no one knows Bridie. it's a speculative question it says something about the person and I want to know what it says about you what do you think happens or just have you just settled on I don't know what it is but I'm going to believe that it's something I don't know what it is but I believe in souls I think I've got a funny sort of spirituality that is definitely very informed by my Irish Catholic upbringing but I'm not I'm not a practicing Catholic at all but I have a funny sort of spirituality that's definitely informed by that. I talk to the dead people in my life all the time. I feel them around me. Um, I feel their love around me. I think in that accident, in my accident I had a few months ago when I was sitting on the grass looking at the car, um, I felt I've been protected. I've been, someone has been looking after me. I felt my, like my mother's prayers. I thought a lot about my granny and my nana and my aunt specifically, three three people who have died and felt like they were there. And I think there is, I don't think, I don't believe in heaven and hell. And I don't think that when I die, I'm going to rise, rise up into heaven and then be reunited with these people. But there is something around their souls, their love. It's still an energy around. And I 
feel like, yeah, there's something there. And also I believe in ghosts as well. And I've seen ghosts. So Okay. So all right. We're gonna get to okay, <laughs> let's just explore that a little because it's funny. I've this is my second one of these that I've recorded today. And I was speaking to a a great young Australian stand-up comedian called Danielle Walker and she was talking to me about ghosts and the fact that she had seen a ghost. I don't believe in ghosts. I don't believe in aliens. My girlfriend will tell you absolutely to her chagrin because she believes in everything that I believe in nothing. She's probably right. I'm interested in what other people believe. I don't believe in them myself. Tell me about your ghost experience. I've seen a few ghosts over the years. Um, The most recent was I lived in this house in Sydney last year and lying in the bed, I was like half napping and I could hear someone walking around the house and opening and closing the doors. And then he came into the room and like looked at, looked over me and looked at me in the bed. It was like really freaky and I was quite frozen. Look at your face. You're so skeptical. You're like, Friday, that's a dream. You are having a dream. I can tell what you're thinking. <laughs> It's your story, Bridie. I'm not here to judge you. <laughs> but this is back to the feeling stuff. And yeah. I was like, and he was there. And then when I talked to my landlord, that house was owned by the same man for 45 years and he had no wife and no children and he died in the house. And I think he's he was checking out occupants and having a look. And I could feel that he did not like where I had put the couch and some things <laughs> in the house. <laughs> He thought there was a better configuration. See that I, could, makes, I can tell. If that is true, no, let's just assume. Let's assume all this is true. That disappoints me because I would hope that in my afterlife I have better things to do than go and check out my old house and get angry about where somebody's put the couch. Except, well, I think I would have. I think it says a lot about where you were in your life when you died, but also maybe his happy place is right. the house. Also maybe he's like trapped there. And he needs to be released and he needs to like let go of some of his, some of the stuff he was hung up on in his life. Yeah, I'm going to sound like a crazy person on your podcast. <laughs> like where his couch was. <laughs> no, I mean, lots of people believe in ghosts. Like I said, my partner believes in ghosts. Like that, that's why I find it a fascinating topic because like I am, I know you describe my face as being very cynical and it probably <laughs> was because I can't like help, but, because that's just how my brain processes these things. But I actually am not judgy about it. I want to hear what people believe. I don't have any sense of what is true or not true. I don't think you're judgmental. Like, no, I didn't think you were judgmental. You're just skeptical of what I'm saying. You're just like, it's not real what you're saying. <laughs> but you think it's interesting, I believe it. Yeah, I think that's good. Like, it's like, yeah, but I guess there is a part of me that is judging at the same time. Like, despite <laughs> the fact that I'm like, no, you're not. You're cool, man. Like, everyone can believe everything, but there's still a part of me going, yeah, it's probably just the wind or whatever. So, <laughs> Yeah, or well, like a dream. But no, so I think, and I find it very comforting to think that the people I love, I don't think that they're just yeah. gone forever. And I also like think... You know, it's like we have personalities and feelings and emotions, mm-hmm. and I don't think that that just ends when you die. I think that that has to go somewhere. So where do our personalities and feelings and emotions come from, do you think? Like how much of you do you think is a product of your friends and family and environment and how much of you is inherently just something you were born with? And I guess what's your observation of that when it comes to your children? Yeah, having children is a really big insight into this I think especially when they you know when they first have their very own tastes and preferences which is usually before they're one year old and you're just like whoa you're your own person where has this come from I think that people are born 
there are some traits I think that you're born with. I do think there's a bit of your personality that you're born with and you can see it in babies and see it as they grow older, which is super, super interesting. And I think lots of parents will say that. Um, but you're also hugely influenced by your environment. And so, you know, the way that you're parented, obviously an influence, I think siblings, huge influence. And I looked up the studies into this and it's not very well studied at all, but it's super interesting that your siblings could be like the deciding factor in your environment that decides a lot of your, the aspects of your personality, because they're basically the first people that you learn how to be a person with, like you learn how to um, deal with conflict through fighting with siblings, you can learn empathy because it can be the first person where you start to learn to see something from someone else's perspective. And there are other more simple things like it can make you like authoritarian because, you know, I was allowed to boss around a lot of little kids for a long time because I was the oldest. So I'm, and I think that there are definitely bossy aspects to my personality that came from that birth order, but also you know, the, just even my, I always think my siblings is such an interesting case study, six years between oldest and youngest, that's four kids in six years, could not be more different from each other. You know, we get along really well, but we have such different personalities. And I don't think that that, and you know, we were parented fairly similarly, but um, so it's obviously not just parents that create that. I think that we're born with it a little bit. And then also, I think another thing is like your mates hugely influence you, like your friends at school can be the people that make you more adventurous uh, or they can be the people that mean that, you know, because you hung out with them for a few years, you're never going to try drugs in your life for instance, like those are the things that influence you then. So I think it's always our environments and we're always changing and being influenced as well. Do you feel like you are a consistent person or do you feel like, you know, the people you work with would think you are a very different person to, your, your, your social group of friends or whatever? Like, is there like oh, six different brides no walking way. around or is it the same person in every situation? I wish I could be a bit more professional at work and <laughs> hold back a bit more. <laughs> no, there are so many stories at work, like I think quite affectionate ones of me just saying inappropriate things at inappropriate times just because <laughs> I think it's funny, which is, you know, very much my personality. I'm a very consistent person. I'm the exact same person. Um you know, to, to my dad that I would be to a columnist that I edit, for instance, like, yeah, they, they all know like the very fundamentals of my personality and the type of person I am. I have like who, no poker face. Who gets the best of you? Oh, uh, I think sometimes my colleagues, unfortunately, I think. Um, and then my husband, but he also gets the worst of me as well. Um, and my, and then my brother and my sister's. My kids, it's hard to say, like, actually the person that I'm most different with would be my kids because I'm not a very, I guess, nurturing person, I think, but I am very nurturing with them, actually. But I also say the same jokes to my kids that I would say to anyone. Like when my son's really, like, upset about something, I'll be like, nothing is fucked, dude. Nothing is fucked. And, <laughs> and he doesn't get the reference at all and I still say it to him. <laughs> I think I'm a lot softer with them than I would yes. be with, and that would surprise some people if they saw me in that role. I think that would be the most surprising role for a lot of people to see me in. I ask people on this show if they have a life philosophy. I'm interested if you have a life philosophy, but I'm also interested in if that life philosophy has changed based on the events of the last few years. Um, so my life philosophy comes from an interview that Paul McCartney did with Taylor Swift. <laughs> And I think I already had this life philosophy. 
I know that you had someone really smart on this podcast very recently who has read so much theory. And when I was listening to it, I was just like, oh my God, I'm so different. <laughs> this is not. <laughs> I know. Also, two of the great philosophers of our time, Sir Paul McCartney yeah. and, and Taylor Swift. Lady Taylor Swift. <laughs> So I think that I already had this philosophy, but I felt it was really articulated in this interview. And McCartney was talking about uh, when he was in his 20s with the Beatles, they were in a van that drove off the road in snow and broke down and they were stuck in the snow down a bank and it could have been like quite a hairy situation. And one of the people, I don't know if it was a Beatle or if it was just someone who was traveling with them said, sort of shrugged and said, something will happen. And then something did. And McCartney said he's sort of taken that with him his whole his whole life. And it really struck a chord with me. And that is, and I think it all the time now, ever since I read it, if I'm getting upset about something or if there's something really stressful in my life, you know, even lockdown is a great example because I'm in lockdown in Sydney at the moment. If I ever feel I'm getting too stressed, I just think something will happen, meaning it's going to change. Like something, something is going to happen. We're going to eventually get out of this. Or the numbers are going to go up and they're going to go a harsher lockdown. But, you know, something will happen. And I remember it when I'm a bit miserable about things, uh, feeling a bit despondent. But even when stuff is going really well, I also think of it. And I think, you know, when I'm really happy with myself and I've done a good job at work, I also sometimes think, ah, something will happen. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fuck something up at work or I'm not going to fact check something possible, like properly, or, you know, someone's going to hate my book. That's going to happen as well. And I, it's just something that I remind myself all the time if I feel that I'm getting too worked up about something just gives me perspective that's a good perspective so paul said it taylor asked the question and paul said it is that taylor asked the question and paul (laughs) told the story but it was someone else who said to him something will happen but yeah it's a great thing to remember isn't it you just and basically it's change is the only constant is what i get from that and so you know it's not it's not going to stay like this it's going to be fine well it's interesting because my personal philosophy is hate is going to hate 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 so (laughs) it's good that we found this common ground together i love that you know that line i respect you so much for knowing that line i saw um it's true though haters are gonna hate i mean it is a good bit of philosophy (laughs) (laughs) absolutely it's catchy and also makes a serious point um i went and saw sir paul Paul, uh in concert the last time when he came to australia i was lucky enough to go to that concert it was pretty pretty ace pretty exciting what's the best concert you've ever been to in your life do you like music is it something that you enjoy to go to i love music i love music and my best live Live gig is Future of the Left. Do you know no, Future, tell of the me left? Future of the Left? Who's Future of the Left? Mate, they're a cool Gen X band. Oh yeah, I, I'm Gen X. <laughs> I know. I know. I that's know why cool you should Gen know X them. <laughs> Hang on. So my my husband has been very influential on some of my music tastes. Um, so I guess they they're a little bit eclectic, and they're just like a originally were McCluskey, now Future of the Left, Scottish basically rock band, and they come out to Australia every few years. And Falco, the lead singer, I love the songs. I love the music. It's a little bit like it's rock, sometimes a little bit screamo, and he is a funny, funny fucker. And he, I just really, really enjoy those experiences. And he usually plays like somewhere like the factory, you know, not not super Because I remember McCluskey. Yeah, you remember remember McCluskey? So it's Falco from McCluskey has now made Future of the Left. And he, he plays some McCluskey songs, which I love. So that, yeah, he's my favorite. And I've seen him a couple of times and it's the funnest. But I also saw Taylor Swift last time she was in Australia and I loved that as well. She plays a stadium show really well. I bet she does. Like, I mean, she's a 
entertainment creation of her own and of her family and there's all sorts of things going on but absolutely fascinating phenomenon so like being your age and growing up in the world that you've grown in like it feels like a trite question to ask what it's like to be sort of you know a woman in in this age but at the same time it, it is something that I just like to discuss with people what has been your experience of like you know, being female in this time, like a time of reckoning about people's past behaviours and a time of, you know, women like, you know, being a more emerging equal voice, but still like, you know, you know, not being paid the same as what men are being paid and still not having the same access to, you know, all these, like, I mean, even going into a field like journalism, where there was a great tradition of female journalists, of course, but like even what it means to be a female journalist has changed a lot in the last, you know, 10, 20 years. Like, can you talk to me a little bit about just in general about that? God, it's such a, that is such an interesting and thorny question. Well, what is it like to be a woman at the moment? You know, when I started at the Gold Coast Bulletin, which was a News Corps uh, newspaper, and it was an extremely blokey culture, which I was not aware of at the time. And I loved working there and I had a lot of fun working there and I was treated well working there, but um, it was very blokey. I didn't realize that at the time. And I, I guess I had to adapt a bit to the blokey environment, but I was, I was kind of okay doing that. Um, And then I went to Brisbane times and had a great boss there as well. And he was also, but, and he was a man. And then I went to the guardian and had a female boss for the first time in my life. And that was definitely a kind of awakening on different levels about that's sort of when I started to look around and realize the playing field had not been so equal. And there was a different experience of working in, um, in certain places, if you're a woman and not a man, um, you know, even just something as simple as like, I remember one day I got a UTI and my boss that day um, was the person in charge was a woman. And I went up to her and said, I've got a UTI before I even finished the sentence. She's like, Oh my God, go Bridie, go, just leave. It's fine. Go and get, you know, go, go and get the antibiotics you need to. And I said, okay. And then I went and did it. And I remember thinking, Oh my God, I could never have said that to anyone in the office before. And no one would have understood the pain that I was in or what I was going through. And it would have been seen as an embarrassing thing and not just like a medical thing that I need to go get taken care of. So there's those aspects. There's also, you know, like every woman I've been sexually harassed, like at different points in, in different places. And I definitely used to brush it off and not think about it that much. The big reckoning of me too, I found um, very powerful, dredged up a lot of stuff for me. Um, Very powerful, but I also get hugely frustrated by the conversation at times and things that have frustrated me. You know, a book that was very formative to me was Women, Race and Class by Angela Davis. And that's what really opened my eyes to the world and uh, opened my eyes to, uh, well, race, obviously, and how that intersects with feminism and how important it is to be aware of that. But also class, which I hadn't spent a lot of time really thinking about. Because Australia is a bloody classless society, Bridie. That's what we get told (laughs) as we're growing up. Until... Until you land in Sydney <laughs> and you're working in media in Sydney, the daughter of like nurses in a large country family. Yeah. And then you suddenly become very aware of a, a lot of stuff. And I, I actually became aware of, you know, gaps in my education, and even not going to university in Sydney. So 
so women race and class very formative text um probably radicalized me in a way and i guess it's made me frustrated with where the conversation is at at the moment after all those britney higgins allegations came out like what an extraordinary woman uh, i found it very difficult to read that stuff i've worked in parliament house i've been around a lot of that behavior and it really frustrated me how the conversation did not seem to go further than parliament house so the way that these women like especially parliamentarians in positions of power, some of them, mostly overwhelmingly white, look how they were treated in parliament and people don't seem to be able to take the next step of what does that mean for women with not as much power and privilege as them? Like I think that the conversation in Australia at the moment has become quite stuck on how our most powerful and privileged women are treated and the, um, the things that they experience and hasn't been able to move past that into an area that I think that it needs to. So that's my, I hope that makes sense. It makes great sense. Um, It's a bigger conversation and one that needs to keep happening. And it, it's a conversation that men need to be having. This is the thing that, you know, I mean, my industry has had its own reckoning with like, you know, the same things like so many industries have, but like, you know, the comedy industry has done it quite publicly. You know, there's been, Um, a bunch of, you know, really terrible examples of like, you know, not only, you know, proper, you know, major sex offenders who worked in the industry, but also just a culture that turned a blind eye to a whole bunch of things that it shouldn't have and wasn't an inclusive place for people of different colours and races and sexes and all these sort of things. And, you know, I think that as a comedian, I feel a responsibility to reckon with what part I played in that and, you know, what part I can play in it going forward. And it does anger me a little bit that when I look at what happens in politics, that I'm going, I'm sure there must be politicians who are also reckoning with that and thinking that, but we're just not hearing them say it much. And particularly men. No, they don't reckon it becomes with this the, thing where it's And they like don't seem women. to care. Sorry, I, good exa- time to talk over the top of a woman when I'm making this point. I'm so sorry, I didn't mean that. But, but No, you go. But you, my point being fine. that, I, I just, when these things happen, I wish it wasn't just always on all the women to be doing the heavy lifting around it. I wish there were male politicians going, coming out and also going, oh, I find this hideously offensive and I want to be part of, you know, changing what is happening here. I just don't hear those voices as much as I would no. like to hear those voices. Well, I don't think that, uh, I think there's a lot of them that don't really care, to be honest. But also, I get frustrated about that. I wish that more men would have the conversation, but I also wish that more powerful women and in particular, I guess, white women or and women from like upper middle-class backgrounds could also take the conversation a bit further and say, well, if this is what ha- what is happening to us and we have a little bit of power and a little bit of a voice, what is going on with the immigrants in our community, the Aboriginal women in our community, the women in our community doing a lot of the lowest paid jobs such as, in well across all sectors like cleaners uh people working like nannies uh babies you know nannies babysitters assistant nurses in nursing homes you know what's going on with them because if you can treat really like people women with a bit of power and privilege the way that they've been treated in parliament house like fuck what's happening a little bit further down but people and we should be talking about that and trying to have a discussion around that and i just see the conversation always stalling with um a very middle class mostly white woman experience uh some uh questions to finish up 
buy the book. It's called Trivial Grievances, and uh, we'll have a party when the sequel comes out. Yeah, we'll you have you have to come party. to my party. You come to the I party. I will not come, but I'll uh, I'll organize it. <laughs> I'll organize it on your behalf, and you'll not turn up. It'll be fine. No one will miss me. It'll be okay. So, uh, what is the worst piece of advice you ever got? Did you someone give you a, a piece of advice that you've later on just worked out was absolutely full of shit? I think probably something to do with working hard. I think that piece of advice that I got was like, if you work hard, then you will get the things that you deserve, which is just not the case. Like I've, I've worked hard and got lots of great things, but more broadly, that's not how it works for everyone. You don't just get to work the hardest and pull yourself up by the bootstrap, bootstraps and everything's fine. So I always hate that kind of advice. It's the lie they sell you to keep you working hard. Exactly. Um, all right. So um, if you could wake up tomorrow, you don't have to do your 10,000 hours to perfect the skill. You just have a skill. Uh, what was that? What would you love to just be able to do? To understand and speak every language in the world. Yeah. It's a popular answer. And I think at the heart of it is what? About communication? Is that what it is? About being able to understand everybody's stories? Other yeah. people. Curi I think curiosity. Because I, I know it's a basic answer, but it's my true answer. And um, I think it's just, yeah, it's about being curious about other people and wanting to be able to understand them and communicate with them. And eavesdrop on them. <laughs> I have a little bit of metal on my desk. On it is inscribed as close to an inspirational saying as uh, I have in my life. It says, what would you attempt to do if you knew you could not fail? I would like to ask you that question. If success was guaranteed, what is the thing you would attempt? Oh, God, that is so hard. If, uh, if success was guaranteed, the thing that I would attempt would be moving to Kira and living next to the beach and making a life there. That's all right. And but still being able to write and all that kind of thing and have an interesting work, but not too much work from there. <laughs> Just, and not be forgotten yeah. by the rest of Australia, which I'm sure is what would happen. <laughs> all right. Final question. I have a time machine. I can take it any point in the future, any point in the past. First question is, do you go forward or do you go backwards? If you go more than a hundred years backwards, it's going to smell really bad. Do you ever think about that? How much people would have stank more just over a hundred years ago? Terrible. Well, the the one that I am reminded of is when they got rid of um, smoking inside. Because I'm old enough that I remember when they used. To, in fact, I started doing stand up. You could still smoke on stage. The audience would be smoking, right? And I remember when they got rid of smoking in pubs, and then suddenly everyone realised how much pubs stink. <laughs> like it was just like farts and like stale beer and stuff. Was like, oh god, hang on. So that cigarette smoke was really covering up some shit so yes you're right you'd have to take deodorant so would you go forward or backward in time forward i already know okay. what happened back in time how far forward 70 years to where well to hopefully where my kids are i want to see how their lives have turned out and i also want to see like how destroyed is society destroyed in 70 years you know I think that a lot of pretty massive things are going to happen pretty quickly but i really i want to see them when they're old and i'm never going to see them when they're old any other way and I hope, well, I hope they live to get that old. Bridie, thank you so much for doing the show. I really appreciate it. I know we're on a little bit of a time constraint. You've got kids to pick up. So um, thank you so much for giving me the time and doing the show. Thank you so much. It's been so fun. Yeah.